This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it. The glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. I want to tell you about the morning Donna Moore took a swim. To do that, we're going back to 1971 to the north shore of Ken Island. It's a slab of land smack dab in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. All the locals knew that Donna liked to start her day with an ocean swim. She lived alone, but it didn't take long for the townsfolk to realize Donna was missing. And they knew exactly where to search. It took a few days, but eventually they found her. What was left of her? Yeah, it was brutal. A volunteer came across Donna's ripped apart torso on a beach, a mile south of her home. One of her hands was found even further down. And a leg... You get the picture. She was spread all over the sands of Ken Island, each extremity chewed on and picked over, maybe even chewed on again, and then spat out. Among her neighbors, there wasn't much debate about who or what did this. It was Chessie. Sounds cute, right? (laughs) Well, she's not. As you might know, I'm from Maryland, born and raised. So I know all about Chessie, a 30-foot snake with a set of teeth to match. She was first seen in the 1930s and has been spotted sporadically in the decades since. But her reputation after those early appearances wasn't something lethal. Mostly she'd just emerge on the horizon, freak out a few witnesses, then vanish. No one was too worried. In fact, we were kind of proud. She was Maryland's version of Nessie, our Bigfoot. That sentiment lasted until the 1970s, until Donna Moore, until it seemed like Chessie had developed a taste for human flesh. And after that, everyone nervously awaited her next appearance. Certain it would be more than some performative glide-by. She'd feed again on whichever poor soul she saw first. But that never happened. And like all things folks forget, me included... The passage of time muffled our worries about Chessie. Then, an old childhood friend of mine emailed me a link to some Baltimore Sun article. It was 50 years to the day that Donna went missing, and as I began to read, those old fears about the bay came roaring back. A father and son had gone out one stormy overcast morning to check their traps, but only one of them returned. 
You're listening to Run Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes, and this is episode 12, The Monster of Chesapeake Bay. Dave stared into the dark, frothy water of the Chesapeake Bay. Mist rolled across its surface, the result of the cold rain sprinkling the warm ocean. His arm muscles ached as he pulled hard on a rope. It ran through a pulley, hauling up one of his cages from the bay's floor. When the trap reached the surface and broke through the fog, Dave deflated. Just two small blue crabs. Dave couldn't say it was unexpected. It had been a hot summer, and the water stayed too warm in the September, which meant crab populations were all out of whack. It wasn't his fault, but knowing this didn't make Dave feel any better. He stared at the paltry catch, feeling every one of his 55 years. This was the sixth trap he'd pulled, and the others weren't any better. It was going to be a lean year. The only thing that made this moment worse, the clicking and tapping of a phone coming from behind him. Those were courtesy of his 16-year-old son, Martin. The whole time they'd been out today, he'd been hiding under the awning, barely looking up from his screen, making it abundantly clear he did not want to be there. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the complex dynamic of fathers and sons, but the rift between Martin and Dave can be broken down as follows. Dave wanted Martin to take over the family business, meaning this boat, when Dave retired. And Martin didn't. He wanted to find his passion, and crabbing wasn't it. Dave spent a lot of nights being pissed off about this. He had endured countless hours on the water over the years. It wasn't passion that kept him working late and getting up early. It was being able to provide for his family. It was building a business that he could pass on to the next generation. But as the rain smacked against the hood of his jacket, he stared at the meager catch. Even Dave had to admit he wasn't providing much this year which is why the sound of Martin texting especially stung. Each tap and buzz was a reminder that Dave's hard work, his sacrifice, not only was it unappreciated by this kid, it was maybe all for naught. Put the phone away, he told Martin, or I'll chuck it in the bay. Martin heard him. Oh, sure he did. But he just kept his fingers busy flying over the screen. And Dave, well, this was about as far as his patience would go. He lunged forward, snatched Martin's phone, then hurled it over the side of the boat. It was midair and still pinging relentlessly, like the phone knew it was about to die and was making a last desperate bid for life. Then it hit the water, more of a thunk than a splash, and was silenced by the thick, murky bay. Martin stared, mouth agape. Even Dave was shocked it had come to that, the kind of shock that demands a moment of silence, a chance to gather one's thoughts. Without the buzzing and beeping of the phone, every sound now felt sharp and visceral to Dave. Water lapped against the boat, rain pattered on the awning, seagulls laughed in the distance. It was almost peaceful. Until father and son erupted in a screaming match. They spat insults, accusations, said all of the things they probably regret later. They both knew it too, but they couldn't stop because something about being out on the water unleashes things. All the unsaid, pent-up rage pours forth without any kind of stopper to hold it back. And so it was Dave and Martin, like it had been for so many other seafarers before them. That is, until the boat rocked. 
It was hard enough that they needed to grab hold of the railing and steady themselves. Dave looked out at the bay, expecting to see that the water had gotten rough during their screaming match. It hadn't. Despite the steady rain, there wasn't any wind, and there was no other boat in sight that might have caused a wake. Meaning, there was nothing to explain why their boat had just lurched like that. Before Dave could marinate on what else could have caused it, the boat moved again. And this time, the word rocking wouldn't do it justice. It was shaking, violently. Something hit the wood hull with a loud smack, launching them both through the air. Martin had hit the planks beside him while Dave shot across the deck, landing in a heap. He sat up, dazed, and went to look over the rail. The bay was still calm, just tiny speckles from the rainfall and the light ripples caused by their still rocking boat. Dave didn't know what to make of it. Maybe there was a rocky outcrop they'd run up on, but he shook that thought off fast. He knew this place like the back of his hand. This is where he'd laid traps for decades. There were no shallows here, no rocks. At that moment, the sun peeked out from behind the cloud cover. It sent a few rays into the bay, giving Dave a quick glimpse below the surface. It was enough to see something that made his blood run cold. Through the brackish water, a shadow moved, half a boat wide and long, too. It seemed to go on and on as it swam under his feet, its body undulating like a giant strip of seaweed caught in the tide. Dave didn't know what he was looking at, but his palms turned sweaty, and adrenaline crashed through him like an electric shock. Martin was at his back, dusting himself off. He was pretty worked up over the fall and continued sputtering burst of teenage angst as his dad turned slowly and stared at him. Seeing the look on Dave's face, he thought maybe he'd gone too far. Maybe he'd finally broken something in his father who was standing there silent, slack-jawed, and wide-eyed. Except, it wasn't because anything he'd said. It was because of what was behind him. Over Martin's shoulder, Dave was staring into a pair of slitted yellow eyes rising out of the water. Each was the size of a frying pan and set in a slick, scaly head over a serpentine snout. A forked tongue went back and forth over sharp, limb-sized fangs. This beast let out a loud hiss, and it was at the same moment that Dave finally had the wherewithal to break from his silence and release a petrified, panic-stricken scream. Martin turned around, because that's what you do when your dad has clearly seen something utterly terrifying behind you, and when you hear what can only be described as a deafening, beastly hiss. When Martin saw the incredibly large snake looming behind him, his brain turned to putty. The nerves in his body all fired at once, the chaos paralyzing him with confusion, holding back every instinct to move until it was almost too late jumped out of the way just as the snake's jaws shot down at him. The strength of the bite sinking into the boat splintered the wood of the deck. Fragments spewed into the air as the massive teeth mulched the boards. He felt the sharp sting of splinters dig into his cheeks and arms. He squeezed his eyes shut, staggering towards his dad on the other side of the deck. He looked back. The snake was still there. Its long neck, body, slunk calmly towards them. Martin grabbed the thing that was closest to him, which just so happened to be a large plastic bucket that held their day's catch. He chucked it at the monster, spilling out crabs like confetti as it soared through the air. The plastic bucket collided with the thing's snout, 
It could hardly have caused much damage, but it earned them a loud hiss anyway. And a retreat. The snake slithered back out of sight, disappearing over the side of the boat. Martin stood there, panting. He was pretty pleased with himself. He'd saved the day. He turned to his dad, ready for a high five, but when he looked at Dave, he didn't see Dave's hand raised, ready to slap his own. And he didn't see any gratitude on Dave's face. Just anger. It took a second for it to sink in, that his dad was actually mad. Mad that he'd sacrificed some crabs to save their lives. Dave couldn't help it. Call it fisherman's instincts colliding with a healthy dose of familial drama. It took a minute for him to shake the weight of normal life and accept that he was in the middle of a nightmare. That he'd just faced down a massive water snake that had tried to eat him. And there was only one of those he'd ever heard of. He didn't have much time to process this lore-come-to-life revelation, though, because the boat lurched again. It was time to get out of there. Dave ran to the helm and grabbed the wheel. He turned it around as hard as he could and revved the motor. The closest land was Kent Island. They'd have to dock there. The boat sped through the surf for all of 30 seconds. Then Chessie resurfaced in front of them. Not her head this time, just a hump of scales rising out of the misty surface. Her back hit the tip of the boat, throwing Martin and Dave forward. Dave hung onto the wheel, spinning it the opposite way, to church them on the other side of the bay. This time, the boat made it just a few feet before a salty spray kicked up. It was Chessie's head rising up from the waves. Dave dragged the wheel back the other way towards Maryland. Same thing. Then behind him, Chessie again. Once the boat stopped, Chessie sank beneath the surface out of sight. Dave powered down the motor. The boat bobbed there like a top. He tried not to panic, which wasn't easy, because he understood what was happening. Chessie had them encircled. Her body was so large it had wrapped around their entire boat. They weren't going anywhere. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Martin muttered something snippy about how a phone might have been useful at that point. It was an obnoxious thing to say, but it made Dave realize he'd forgotten something. The radio. They were in trouble. Radio was the first thing they should have turned to. But you know, seeing a legendary monster can make you dumb sometimes. 
He grabbed the receiver and turned the dial to the Coast Guard station. Mayday, he shouted, Mayday. Of course, the guys on the other end knew Dave really well, knew his boat. And once they heard it was him, they were keen to help. They asked what was going on, which sort of made Dave pause. What did he say here? A monster? Chessie herself? But before he could get out another word, the boat heaved to the port side. A rope on the left railing was being yanked into the water. You know, the one that ran through the pulley, that hauled the crates up. It was moving fast, making the pulley gear spark. And then it caught, and the entire boat heaved to the side. Wood groaned as the vessel listed. Any more pressure and they'd flip right over. Dave raced over to the pulley, trying to release it. Just as he grabbed a hold, the rope snapped free. And with that, the boat shot back down again. Dave had been holding on to the pulley at the time, so he had something to steady himself when all this happened. But Martin wasn't prepared. He was just standing there, watching on. So as the boat slapped against the water, he careened over the other side, right into the bay. Dave stood there, staring out to where his son had just vanished. A few small bubbles broke the surface, but otherwise it was quiet. Dave readied himself to jump in, breaking a fisherman's cardinal rule to never abandon the boat. But terror and desperation makes us do things we never would expect. We never should expect. All of a sudden, the water erupted as Martin resurfaced with a scream. Dave leaned over the side of the boat his hand so outstretched he almost overbalanced. Martin flailed, reaching for his dad, their fingertips brushed against each other, inches away from rescue. But then, in one swift movement, Martin was yanked beneath the surface, this time leaving a bubbling geyser in his wake. Dave searched the deck frantically for some kind of weapon, which it occurred to him he had, his old fishing knife, the one his father gave him when he took over the family boat. The one he'd intended to give to Martin. Now he'd be using it to save his ass. Dave's hands flew into his backpack. He pulled the blade out. Then, gripping it tightly, he dove headfirst into the bay. At first, he couldn't see a thing. The water was dense, dark. His eyes strained to see even the most blurry of shapes. But as his vision adjusted ever so slightly, he could see it the massive reptilian shape passing beneath his feet into the darkness. The monster of Chesapeake Bay. Dave's lungs constricted. His air was already running out, which meant Martin's was too. He had to hurry, but Dave wasn't going anywhere at that moment because a pair of yellow eyes appeared just ahead of him. Chessie. She was gliding towards him with a flailing Martin caught in her jaws. Dave waited, the knife waving about in front of him, connected with Chessie's nose as she darted at him, sending her veering off to the left. The damage was enough for the beast's grip on Martin to loosen, and as his son wiggled free, Dave's chest burned, but he couldn't surface. Chessie was already circling back at him. This time, as she came at him, he kicked himself free to the side and plunged the knife into one of Chessie's glowing amber irises. The creature let out a scream that sent a torrent of bubbles streaming around Dave. His body was enveloped in a rhythmic electric pulse. He lost sight of his son, who had been bobbing beside him, blood pouring from a gash in his leg. But Dave couldn't hold on any longer to search for him. He kicked against the water, 
his arms pushing up towards the fading light of day above him. He was so, so close when he could feel his body start to fail him. He was starting to slip back, back into the dark water below when... Martin's hand shot through the surface and began hauling Dave up. He'd already made it back onto the boat and used every bit of strength he had to pull his much larger father on board with him. The two collapsed on the deck, gasping for air. They were both pretty beat up. Martin's leg was a mess. It had, after all, been chewed on by a giant snake. As for Dave, he was too old for this kind of thing. His lungs were working overtime to keep his heart from straight up giving out. Father and son looked at one another. Martin asked between gulping breaths, what do we do now? Dave didn't know, but he liked that Martin was asking, like he was finally appreciating Dave's knowledge of these waters. He tried to assess the situation. Their plea to the Coast Guard had been cut off, but chances were help was still on the way. And maybe he'd injured Chessie enough for them to get out of there. Dave stumbled towards the helm, but before he could get there, the world changed. deck exploded like wooden fireworks as Chessie shot through its center. Dave fell through the gaping hole into the water. He flailed, trying not to sink again. The rocking and careening of the boat splashed walls of water into his face. And as he steadied himself, he saw it. Chessie, half sticking out of the water, her back writhing from side to side, roaring towards him. No, not at him, past him. He turned and saw what she was headed for. Oh, oh no, Martin. His kid was hanging onto a scrap of wood off the side of the boat, or what remained of the boat. Dave had all of two seconds to make the call he made next. And in those two seconds, he managed to do quite a lot of thinking. See, he hadn't known why Chessie had emerged at this precise moment in time. Maybe she was affected by the warming water too. Maybe the heat had woken her up. But that didn't matter. Not really. Because what Dave did know was this. Chessie was hungry. I mean, her last meal was Donna Moore back in the summer of 71. I'd be hungry too. If it was food she needed to disappear for another few decades, then that's what she'd get. And Dave wasn't going to let his kid be her next bite. So... He started screaming as loud as he could. Chessie slowed her journey to Martin and turned. Dave's knife was still jutting out of one eye. Fresh blood poured forth even as rain tried to wash it away. But her other eye was just fine. That one leered at Dave. Curious, then annoyed, then lethally angry. She sped towards Dave, streaking through the water with a horrific billowing grace, the kind of delicate movement that shouldn't come from a bloodthirsty, horrific monster but it did all the same. And as that yellow eye got closer, as those jaws opened wide, Dave looked over at Martin with a smile. Maybe the first smile he'd given his son in years. He hoped that grin told him everything would be okay. That grin held something else too, something for Dave. He realized that providing for Martin all those years was well and fine. But this was the kind of sacrifice he felt good about making, because it was the kind that didn't expect anything in return. And then, as Chessie ducked under the water, he felt her teeth grab his leg. Her fangs pierced through his skin with a searing pop. 
and then she shot downwards, dragging Dave with her. As the swirling sea encircled him, Dave looked upwards. The gloomy weather must have cleared because he swore the last image he saw was of orange rays breaking through the water. They lit up Dave's descent for just a moment, a final farewell as he departed from the world above and was yanked into the pitch black ether of the bay. The article I was reading had an interview with Martin. The Coast Guard had arrived to find him floating beside a half-sunken boat. Obviously, he claimed Chessie was the culprit. Chessie attacked them, bit up his leg, ate his dad. But the journalist went on to point out that search parties had combed the area, used infrared tech and all that crap, and they hadn't seen anything close to a 30-foot beast lurking in the ether. No sign of Dave's body either. Basically, they called bull on the whole thing, said the boat's engine must have exploded and incinerated Dave along with it. I can't say who had it right. Of course, I was more willing to side with Martin, given my penchant for the uncanny. And either way, the story provides a warning to all who claim to understand the sea. We don't. Not at all. We fish in it, boat on it, sunbathe by it, all the while ignoring an important truth that there is no way humans can fully understand something so vast, let alone master it, and that any second something hideous and deadly could rise out of its unknowable depths and swallow us whole. And we have no right to be surprised. The sea owes us no explanation. Run Fool is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and Atwell Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Kate Murdoch and produced by Abakar Adan and Lee Mengistu. Editing by Matt Hickey. It was also sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Creature vocalization by Terry Cashburn. And artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Lacasio. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levitt. Executive producers at Atwell Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Guerin. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.